This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, for this episode of Asia in Focus. It's called Values and Valuations, Driven by Compliance, Ethics, or the Bottom Line? Question mark. I'm Steve Wilford. I'm a partner in Asia Pacific at Control Risks. And joining me today are Rima Bhattacharya, Rosie Hawes, and John Bray. Now, Rima's an analyst for South Asia. But not only that, uh, because she also focuses on things like the green economy, uh, business ethics and social governance industry issues and how those things are evolving right now. Based in Shanghai, uh, Rosie Hawes, she leads our business intelligence practice for the Greater China and North Asia region. And Rosie is at the cutting edge of investigating many of our clients' concerns in the ESG space. And last but not least, John. John Bray has been working in the area of ethics, compliance and human rights consulting uh, for many, many years and has been integral in shaping our thinking in this field. Today, we're going to unpick what real ESG looks like. My goodness. Um, And particularly, we're focusing on the Asia-Pacific region and the key considerations for those investing in this region. So welcome everybody and welcome Rima, Rosie and John. As John, I think, will tell you, uh, corporate interest in the environment, in the social role of the company, how businesses improve their governance, so on and so forth. We all know this has a a very long history. Um, For me, uh, I suppose what's new is this E, S, and G thing, um, and how we, the how the debate has expanded from what should be done to what the company has to do to remain compliant to now what the company needs to do if it wants to improve its valuation, uh, both as a brand um, and I think in absolute terms. So what, of course, is also very new and still very much in play is the pandemic this curse on all of us. Um, And I think that's having a significant impact on this debate as well. I remember an FT headline, uh, I think it was from last January, around the time of the the last uh, physical Davos meeting of of the World Economic Forum, actually, when uh, ESG investing, environment, social and governance investing, um, uh, was queried as to whether it would survive uh, the anticipated global downturn, uh, whether the same emphasis would 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 be attached to it as the economy began to take its expected downturn, uh, as it was reported at that time. Uh, well, it turned out the downturn was was uh, somewhat more unanticipated un- than that, um, and due to this rampant disease, has been this 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 economic slump <clears throat> wider and deeper than any in modern times. But the interesting thing to see is that interest in ESG investing only seems to be moving uh, upwards. It only seems to be expanding. 
and it now seems to dominate every page of the financial press and every news website we're looking at on a daily basis. So this thing, dear people, is here to stay, which is why we're here uh, to discuss it. So without further ado, I'd like to uh, ask you, Rima, um, you, you know, as I as I introduce you, you're a, you're a great follower of this story. What on earth is ESG? Where's it come from? Where is it going? Enlighten us, please. Thanks, Steve. Uh, big questions there. I'll tackle the first one. So, looking back to where we were 30 years ago when climate change first entered the global policy discourse. 2020 does appear to be an important year for climate action and green growth. Uh, from pricing to green industrial laws, I think the interaction between economic ideas and climate policies have undergone a paradigm shift. But like you said in your opening remarks, the story of ESG really is the story of valuation. And I think it is about big institutional investors and, and the capital markets asking themselves, whether redefining their corporate values in a way that includes all stakeholders and not just shareholders is perhaps a better business strategy, which will pay off in the long term. I mean, we these trends uh, started emerging right after the 2008 global financial crisis, where, of course, you know, the public trust in businesses and institutions hit rock bottom. So Companies with more social capital, better CSR credentials were able to retain their workers despite not being able to pay them, consequently did better financially compared to other uh, uh, other businesses. So which I think really built the business case for ES ESG investing back then. Mm. But pandemic has proven beyond doubt that climate change, amongst other things, is an active commercial threat that needs to be mitigated. So to answer your question about where we are going with this, I think we're seeing a hyperactive market with a number of innovative investment strategies. You know, there are there is negative exclusion, there's ESG integration, active management, impact investing. While this is all good, I think that the market cannot course correct in vacuum. We need robust policies and regulations to steer these investments. But uh, while the market has already parked a lot of money, created complex financial products, and is betting big on ESG, regulations are still playing catch up. We now have more than 300 different global ESG reporting standards with no consensus on what counts as ESG investing or how to even assess companies that claim to be adhering to these principles. So there are, uh, I mean, there are big high-profile multilateral bodies, uh, the IMFs the, uh, and, and the World Econ Economic Forums and all of that, who, which act as key knowledge broker, brokers for green growth, but they cover different ESG areas and have different goals and methods of measurement. So the companies that are being assessed, they're being assessed on self-reported data and can essentially cherry-pick results depending on whichever reporting framework they can choose to adopt. Hmm. Hyperactive market, like that expression, green bubbles forming, perhaps. Hmm, we might we might discuss that a little bit later. Grima, just continuing on from that, do you think um, responsible investing principles? Uh, you know, how do you think they're going to be invest? Uh, they're they're going to be rolled out, particularly in Asia. First question, and second question is, um, do you think this is going to this is going to happen? Um, uh, it, in in a in a way that's going to be very different in the wake of the pandemic. 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, Steve, I think ESG regulations in Asia are primarily being driven by the wealthy countries. I'm talking about the Japanese pension funds, Hong Kong, stock exchange, as well as China security regulators. And in the past two decades, all major Asian markets have taken steps towards strengthening ESG reporting, you know, in terms of mandating disclosure, stewardship codes, etc. But we know this, that if Asia's emerging markets have built their commercial successes and competitive advantage over low over things like low cost manufacturing, low wages, weak co corporate governance standards, limited investment in automation and safety. So pardon my skepticism, but it is quite hard for me to imagine how responsible investment principles can be implemented in this region within the existing economic framework without fundamentally rethinking what constitutes uh, as wealth or value in the global south. So in the aftermath of the pandemic, which mind you has wiped out decades of socioeconomic gains in a matter of months, I think we'll see these governments resorting to old and proven tricks like diluting land and labor laws to jumpstart growth. We'll also see more political considerations play out in, in investments in new policies, like in new areas like renewables, issuance of green bonds, etc. So all of this, again, will affect the efficacy of the ESG data being monitored and reported uh, from the ground. So what I see coming is a post-pandemic wave of greenwashing scandals. Uh, you were just talking about green bu bubbles. I completely agree with that. And we'll see a lot of them coming out of Asia. We'll see, uh, and I really think that particularly for active investors and impact investors, assessing the credibility of ESG data in, in factory Asia is going to be very difficult if they don't fully understand the country context. Yeah, I, I, I'm totally with you on that. Uh, and you are forgiven, Rima, for, for being the pessimist in this. I, I'm slightly with you. John Bray, one of life's optimists, perhaps. Um, what do you think about the health of ESG investing? You know, it's measurement, it's, 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 it's monitoring the threat of greenwashing. I mean, particularly in this part of the world and particularly as we come out of pandemic, John. Okay, thank you. So I am an optimist, but I'm a skeptical optimist. I'm a, always a qualified optimist. Uh, first, to, to explain a little bit about where I come from, um, you mentioned I've been working on this for years. The particular angle that I've had is more with the S and the G. It's yep. the governance, it's the social, it's particularly anti-corruption. It's also business and human rights. What I see there is an evolving, inconsistent, but incremental agenda it, it's supported it is by rigging the regulation that we see those areas are with governance and accountability both of those areas are now carried through to the e to the environmental agenda what we're also seeing is that the whereas climate change denial was vaguely possible. It's not really hard to, 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 to be in denial. So the E is giving further impetus to the S and G. You can't actually do the E unless you have proper governance. On the scandals, um, 
I'm there, that, that, that's an area where my, perhaps I can say, targeted optimism comes in. There will be scandals. For me, stepping back a bit as a global citizen, bring them on, because we learn through scandals. They drive the agenda forward. As a business consultant, our role is to help our clients stay away from the scandals, learn from other people's scandals, learn how to prevent them, learn how to respond them, and do it properly. Yeah. Doing it properly is, is to repeat, it's about governance, internal governance, and accountability. So John says, "Bring it on," um, and it's it's. I totally agree. It's very much a very much a learning game. Uh, you can't learn without a lot of knowledge. Um, and I think whilst you've painted a picture of ESG being a very broad concept, both of you with its detractors, um, one of the one it's not the dominant focus for, for discussion but it's certainly one of them and that's you know it surrounds valuing companies for that for their esg potential it's certainly an area of interest that's rising up the rising up the, the scales if, if you look at uh, look at the uh, financial press um and you know that concept of valuation in the esg sense has very much come out of wall street um you know larry, larry people like larry fink have got a lot to say about this um and to, in order to have that knowledge, you've got to have uh, an understanding of your target entities. You've got to do some due diligence. Um, and Control Risk has been in the due diligence business for coming up for 50 years now. Um, and we're very fortunate to have you, Rosie, with us because you're a longstanding practitioner of the art of great uh, due diligence and business intelligence. So I want to ask you the specific question of how do you see ESG concerns impacting the type of work that you do? Thank you, Steve. Yeah, sometimes it, it feels like almost 50 years, I think, but the <laughs> challenges that we see in the, in the problems facing our clients that gets generated through due diligence uh, is uh, always, always fascinating. And mm. yeah, actually, it's a very good question because... In many ways, ESG concerns don't impact due diligence in any way. The kinds of topics, if we break that down, environmental concerns, social, as in labor, uh, treatment of employees, governance issues, are always at the core of, of good reputational due diligence anyway. Uh, what is interesting, of course, is due diligence is very much based on what is available in every ju jurisdiction country by country, information availability is very, very different. Country by country, the local political context, the pressures facing companies, the market issues are all very different. And that is well understood when you look at some of the standards and frameworks that are out there supporting ESG as well. But what this means for due diligence is all about understanding how good the information that you have is. And as, as Rima mentioned earlier, uh, a lot of the uh, assessments that are being made about companies is based on data that they have self-reported. And again, depending on the integrity of the owners, depending on the pressures on that industry and the jurisdiction, you have to question how reliable that data is in the first place. So due diligence is a way to cut through that and provide a really strong independent perspective of those core issues at, at the heart of the company. And underpinning most of the due diligence that we do, but also all of these issues that are linked to ESG as well is still corruption. Uh, I have a 
great example of a project we did recently for a client which demonstrates that. So our client wanted to invest in a Chinese company which produces machinery and they were based in a small town in the north of China. From the public record, you could see that the company had a fairly boring, clean history up until the last two years, when suddenly you could see in litigation records and enforcement records that they were being slammed with environmental penalties. And then corporate filings showed that only about six months ago, they had moved to a new location. So it looked like they had started to be investigated by the regulators and had moved to avoid a regulator crackdown. So we spoke to people to try to understand on the ground exactly what was happening. And it turned out that the company had never been environmentally compliant and was, uh, did not manage its emissions. And luckily for them, had very tight relationships with the local environmental regulator and used to you know, uh, come to an agreement with them in order to avoid the visits and the inspections. And then two years ago, a new head had arrived and refused to be influenced by them. And so they had to start to comply. They couldn't. They realized it was damaging their business and they moved. And they moved to be close to their main supplier, who was very, very well connected locally. Uh, and again, the environmental issues have gone away. So the client was really, really keen to work with this company and asked us, you know, would this relationship be repairable? And the question was really, how integral is corruption to how this company operates? And unfortunately, it was the heart of everything that it does. It's not a compliant company. The ownership of the, the ownership, the management, they're not open to change either. And really, if this foreign investor had come in and tried to clean up the act of the company, the value of the company would have fallen apart because it, it had not invested in the technology and yeah. the, the measures needed. So yeah, corruption, if you don't understand corruption, you don't understand the local issues, you won't mm -hmm. be able to fully address the ESG concerns. Due diligence is always important. Always. Um, always. <laughs> and a very cautionary tale and unfortunately not an isolated one in, in, in my experience as well. Rosie, thank you. Yeah. Um, so you don't need regulators to do good governance, as 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 uh, as John discussed, and you don't need regulators to do good due diligence. But uh, the the changes in the regulatory landscape um, governing ESG are important, are they not, Rima Bhattacharya? So yeah. can you outline can you outline some of the changes that are in play? Because I think it's it's quite a it's it's quite a, a complex picture, is it not? It is a very complex picture. And like I was saying earlier, Steve, the landscape is frag fragmented uh, because we have multiple regulators all working in isolation who fundamentally disagree on metrics and measurements. And uh, another key thing, I think, which is a big problem is regulators' uh, understanding of climate risk. I think that is very limited. It was hard enough for us to fully understand the nuances of carbon emissions, but now the pandemic has exposed those complex interlinkages with zoonotic diseases. So there's new information, technical information coming in from all directions every day. And I think this mismatch between uh, knowledge of issues versus urgency to regulate is leading to a lot of confusion on the ground and incoher incoherent regulation. 
So take Singapore, for example. The Monetary Authority of Singapore authorized uh, more than 22 ESG funds last year and has directed asset managers to launch more of these products this year. However, it is yet to introduce a comprehensive set of ESG labeling guidelines which can identify and certify such fund products to investors. So this obviously leaves in local investors at greater risks uh, of being exposed to greenwashing. And this is exactly what happened in South Korea. The South Korea's stock exchange, which was once the world's biggest market uh, for ESG finance, last year published data revealing that less than 3% of the funding it raised from the markets over the last several years has actually been directed towards environmental projects. So this now looks very bad on the companies, but when auditors uh, sort of did the digging, they found that the regulators had not set up a framework for uh, verifying the ESG issuance. So there were literally no checks and balances on the ultimate use of funds. So I think what I'm trying to get at is the way I see it, a global green order with unified metrics and principles is unlikely in the next few years. If it took us more than a decade to come up with common financial accounting standards and agree on the principles of doing business globally, then I think it's safe to say that ESG might just take longer. Meanwhile, the escalating frequency of climate change related weather events, particularly in Asia, will they, they will not wait and they will trigger more uh, scrutiny and stricter cl climate related action against uh, projects and investors. So in the absence of global standards, I think it will be critical for businesses to understand where these local regulations are coming from, who are their key stakeholders, what are their underlying dis motivations and disposition. Couldn't agree more. Uh, I mean, and the the, the, the climate emergency is ha, ha, seems to have one of its starkest frontiers in this part of the world. Um, and if you don't get on the right side of this uh, as a company, uh, I think you're going to be in for a lot of trouble. But um, John, I think, and I would agree with you on this that you know companies don't need necessarily to, to have the regulators hounding them to be in the to to be in the business of doing the right things and i know governance is your first love um uh it's the g in esg so you know give us the masterclass, mr bray on what our clients should be thinking about uh, in this okay. regard so so uh, let me bring a human rights angle which 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 helps Do. i think on, on on the environmental side so my favorite document, you, I, I, I do have favorites, UN Guiding Principles in Business and Human Rights. It's crafted precisely for where there is a governance gap. It's, it's making the point that in many of the countries where international companies operate, there has been a gap either in regulation, legislation, or in implementation, or both. That doesn't mean that companies have no responsibilities. They have a clear responsibility to respect human rights. And, and the human rights can very clearly, uh, I, I mean, a classic example would be uh, pollution uh, from, from water discharges. That is a human rights problem. So that document is very helpful in laying out at a high level what companies' responsibilities are. What has been happening, that, 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 that document was agreed nearly 10 years ago. We're coming up for its 10th anniversary. What's been happening since then is that countries, companies, but crucially industries, have been working out how it applies to them. So I see many of the 
meaningful guidelines will be coming from industries rather than governments. To give one example, uh, one of my favorites, it's the International Council for Mining and Minerals. That's a industry body. It's a great source of practical guidance based on international instruments for mining companies operating in tough jurisdictions. So we don't need to wait for the local regulations either on human rights or environment, which as I say is linked. It's it, it's basically, basically a message, get on with us now, don't wait for the regulations. There aren't so many mysteries. We know that polluted water discharges are a bad thing. We don't need some local councillor to tell us that. Let's uh, stay with you, John, um, and actually sort of try and bring try and bring things to a, to an elegant close. But I'd like you to take our virtual listeners by the hand and lead them to the promised land. And I want you to tell them what they should be thinking about, really. Get your trusted advisor hat on, John, and tell them what they should be thinking about in terms of future-proofing themselves against the regulatory and reputational and governance you know risk in the in, in the ESG space any any closing bomb mots um so it is due diligence um mm. but it's due diligence driven by international standards not simply by local standards it's due diligence with an international framework which is often going to be set by sectors uh, I, I mentioned mining, um, but the ICT telecommunications sector uh, has a really interesting sectoral body, the Global Network Initiative, which is which is thinking about some of the governance challenges which they face. Uh, it's having a framework within the company, your own company. Um, which is looking at risks and thinking about ESG in the broader sense as sustainability. So it's sustainability in an environmental sense, but it's also sustainability in helping your company survive. That means engagement with your partners. And, and there's another aspect which I like to draw up, which is ESG as a positive incentive. So it's about value for investors. It's also potentially about value for investees. So the win-win the scenario that I'm hoping for is that Rosie's company will invest in the machinery, which it didn't invest in, uh, in, in, in order to be thinking about its long-term future. And, and, and then finally, as part of the framework, you do need to think about the, the worst-case scenario. In ESG terms, the due diligence may throw up bad news. If it, the monitoring also may throw up bad news. That I should I, I, here's, here's John Bray the optimist again, or, 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 or John Bray the creative optimist. Where 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 there is a problem, you need remediation. That's best done through engagement. I.e., the classic example would be a, a Bangladesh clothing company which has labour problems. You could break off in relationships with that company if you're a shirt manufacturer, uh, but it would be better to engage with the company to raise standards rather than throw people out on the streets. And 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 then finally, finally there is the scandal. Well, what what happens if there is a scandal, uh, a real evidence of abuse? Again, that could be a crisis. You need a crisis management plan, which means communication. It means not overreacting. It means step by step investigating what is really going on coming up with a plan 
to 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 remediate the problem. So so thinking ahead. I hope you'll agree, everybody. It's been a it's been a fascinating fascinating session. Um, three very interesting and quite different perspectives. Um, but I think the the, the, the the takeaway is you can't do without any single one of these. Um, you you do have to be mindful of how this industry, if you like, is is valuing itself. That was that was in our title. But as uh, as John said, you know, governance is at the core of this. It really is, um, and good governance is born of actually knowing what you're dealing with or what you're going to deal with. Uh, and that really comes from Crackerjack cracker research and due diligence. So with that, thank you very much. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.